Good morning. We are so excited to get to worship with y'all this morning, to get to praise our Savior. I want to start off with scripture this morning. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first until now, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion that Jesus Christ this morning. So glad to get to worship him with our family and uh, we're just so excited, so thankful for what he's done for us. Let's worship together. Sing it out in your cars. Uh, let's worship our Savior. You, you can roll your window down if you want to. You can raise your hand in the air. Just don't get out of your car. And uh, yeah, let's, let's worship our King this morning. That once was crowned with thorns is crowned in glory now. The Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at His feet we bow. The who wore our sin and shame now robed in majesty the radiance of perfect love now shines for all to see
Good morning, everybody. How is everyone this morning? There we go. I like it. Well, guys, it's good to see everybody on this Easter Sunday, and we just really appreciate y'all continuing to flex with us as plans change, as we move a trailer under a portico to make this happen. So good to see everybody out here today on this windy Easter Sunday. Uh, we just want to bring a couple things before you as we usually do. First thing is that we do have our lyrics on our Facebook page, so check that out. And we had a uh, last-minute audible on one song. So if you want to take a moment and ignore me while I talk and look up the song King of Kings by Hillsong, you can find it on our Facebook page or you can look up those lyrics online. But we will be adding that one to the mix today, King of Kings. Also just wanted to uh, reiterate as we try to... Um, I'd like to reiterate as we do each week, we're really trying to uh, obey all of the, uh, the regulations laid down by our state government. So if we could just remain in our cars throughout the service and afterwards, we really appreciate it. We're continuing as people that you see serving, we're trying to maintain a safe distance as well, except for Brayden and Jenny, which they live together, so they have a pass on that one. But uh, everybody else, we just really want to adhere to those regulations, so we appreciate you doing that on our behalf as well. The other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, we do have this side door cracked open. If you need a restroom, uh, you can head in that side door and into the building for that. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention is on your way out, we have had a lot of people ask about tithing and how they could uh, contribute to the church. And so uh, we have that via online, and you can check that out on our website. Or uh, if you would like, we do have a physical drop-off now. That white box, which is usually in our church building, is here so that you can use those. Um, I have just one scripture that I'd like to share with you this morning before Brayden and Jenny kick us back off into worship. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Guys, let's pray and then let's worship that God, and that Son of God who saves us by grace. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together. Father, we thank you for the provisions you've made. God, we just pray now that we could just honor you and worship you with our hearts, God, in our minds, with our voices. God, to bring all praise to the Father of love who has saved us out of the depths of our sin and our sorrow. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ who has overcome death. God, who is resurrected and alive today. Father, we love you and we thank you.
cars out there. I wish I could see everyone's faces on this uh, Easter Sunday morning. I'll tell you what, taking the two weeks off was nice for me, but I am excited to be back in the pulpit. Of all weeks, this is the most important week, not only to the church, but it's the most important week for all of human history. It's the one week too, but as Bo joked with me this week, where my sermon topic is provided. I don't have to come up with anything. That's good. Yeah, that's good. However, this morning, instead of talking simply about the fact of the resurrection, we're celebrating it as a fact, yes, but instead of talking about it as a fact, I want to hopefully bring us into a little bit deeper understanding of the resurrection. Bring it down to the personal level. The story of the resurrection is familiar to us all. But in reality, very often we miss the significance of it, the importance of it, and I want to get past that. But questioning why, why is it that we miss the significance, I want to set up the passage by trying to answer that question first. I think the Apostle Peter identifies the problem for us in 2 Peter chapter 1. I don't want you to turn there, but I'll just kind of recap what Peter says there. He's talking to his audience about the need for Christians to continually be adding to their faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and so on and so forth. And what he's talking to the Christians there about is the need to continue growing in the new spiritual realities that we all find ourselves in now that we are in this relationship with Christ. But he tells us something that failure to do this, failure to be growing spiritually, leaves us nearsighted or blind. In other words, the problem of focusing on fleshly things is that it causes nearsightedness and blindness. We can summarize it this way. When man lost his innocence through sin, he also lost his sight of spiritual things. Sin causes a nearsightedness or blindness to spiritual truths and spiritual realities. And when this happens, we're either exposed to many dangers and deceptions, or we cannot properly see truth and reality. I want to illustrate this point before we move on. 
In the Old Testament, you all are familiar with the story of Jacob deceiving his father Isaac by pretending to be his brother Esau. Jacob did this in order to steal the blessing that the firstborn had. And it was because of Isaac's blindness that he fell prey to Jacob's deceptions. I think this prefigures what the New Testament talks about where we read Satan manifesting himself to be an angel of light, pretending as his followers are to be apostles of righteousness. And he does this in order to steal the blessing of the gospel from those who don't believe. In the Old Testament we read of Balaam being rebuked by his donkeys and went along to curse the children of Israel. Not seeing as the donkey did that the angel of death was standing in the road in front of him ready to strike. We read of the prophet Elisha's servant overcome with fear when he awoke only to find the Syrian army encamped around their city. And he says to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? To which Elisha responds, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But as the servant looked on the landscape, all he saw was the physical, the earthly, the Syrian army, while Elisha looked on the landscape and he saw something else. And so he prays for his servant. He says, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And when the Lord opened the servant's eyes, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. We see the same truth of blindness portrayed in the New Testament. For instance, in Acts 17, where Paul ministered in Thessalonica, the Jews who were jealous of Paul and his companions ended up dragging Jason in front of the court. And here's what they said. These men have turned the world upside down. Was that what Paul was doing? No. Indeed, he was doing just the opposite. The world had been turned upside down by sin. And what Paul was doing in preaching the gospel was turning it right side up. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus' critique of the church at Laodicea is also very telling. Here's what the scripture says. You say that I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. How drastic a conclusion the Laodiceans came to of themselves and what Jesus did. There is a spiritual blindness to their reality. Now we are all spiritually blind. As Bo read in Ephesians 2, and we'll probably go back to that passage at the end. We are all dead in our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 also says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So it's not surprising that often in Scripture we find the Lord's diagnosis of man the polar opposite of how man diagnoses himself. Having established this, I want to move quickly to where we're going to look this morning, to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And in John chapter 11, we see the blindness present in both Jesus' own followers as well as the Pharisees. We see nearsightedness. So we're going to talk the rest of our time about the significance of this when it comes to the resurrection and what it means. What does the resurrection truly mean? Are we simply after knowing the fact of it? Or is there a deeper truth applicable and significant to every single one of us here this morning? Setting up John chapter 11, I want to ask you this, this statement. It may seem silly, and it may seem easy to you if I were to ask you which men are dead and which men are alive. However, we find in Scripture, just like we just saw with the blindness of people leading them to deceptions and false diagnosis, we find in Scripture often affirming that those who seem alive are actually dead, and those who seem dead are actually alive. We can call those who seem alive and are dead the living dead, and I'm not talking about the rock band. And we can, talk, we can call those who seem dead but are truly alive the dead living. 
In fact, that's what I titled this sermon this morning, The Living Dead and the Dead Living. Really, that's the two groups in the world of which you are a part of. You are either the living dead or you are the dead living. I want to take and quote some other scriptures to support this idea of the living dead, for instance. In Revelation chapter 3 again, verse 1, Jesus said to the church at Sardis, You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 6, speaking of a woman in that congregation who is self-indulgent, he says this, that she is dead even while she lives. Jesus pronounces a woe on the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 23, or Matthew 27, 23, saying this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones. In each of these passages, we see the seeming paradoxical or contradictory truth. Those who are alive, and yet according to God, they are dead. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, as Bo read. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There was a sense in which they were alive in the flesh, dead to God because of sin. What about this second group of the dead living? Well, Scripture also affirms this idea. Paul states in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the parable of the prodigal son, which is so familiar to any of us, in fact, it was the passage preached to which I became a believer. The father says this of his son when he came back to him, this my son was dead and is alive again. In these and as well as many other passages, we see this idea of the living dead and the dead living everywhere. And to make sense of it, we have to understand that the scripture speaks of more than one reality. There is the physical reality which we can all see, touch, taste, hear, smell. And then there is a spiritual reality to which we are all blind to until the Lord Jesus causes us to see. And that is what Jesus was constantly doing in his ministry as he preached these truths. They seem so contradictory to those who listen. What are you talking about? Nicodemus said to Jesus. How can a man be born twice? Does he go back into his mother's womb? And Jesus is speaking of an, a spiritual reality, a spiritual birth, the need for it. So we constantly see people confused at Jesus, and it's because he spoke about realities that we were blind to. Now in John chapter 11, we see these kind of elements, and that's why I've spent this time setting this up. In John chapter 11, I want to first point out the living dead. Now I'm putting, even though it's not technically exegetically correct. I'm going to talk in this group about the disciples, Mary and Martha, as well as the Pharisees. There are those who are either, as Peter said, nearsighted, and there are those who are blind. Those who are nearsighted associated biblically with people who are may have spiritual life in them, but it's diminished. They're like Isaac, who was one of the covenantal fathers, and yet his sight was failing him. Their spiritual walk may be diminished, floundering, or stunted because of this nearsightedness. In other words, these Christians may have focused on things on the earth. They may have got caught up in sin, as Hebrews 12 talks about. And so the spiritual reality of what they are and who they are and what's been done for them, as Peter says, has been lost to them. They've forgotten that they've been cleansed from their former sins. There are also those... Well, let me say this, Revelation 3, 2, I quoted the church at Sardis, where Jesus tells them, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. He follows that up in verse 2, saying this, wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. So the nearsighted, I would say, the disciples, Martha, and Mary, in our passage in John 11, fall in to this group. I'm going to move quickly through this chapter because it's too long with the short amount of time that we have to cover it. 
The first group, the disciples, are there cited. We see this in verses 7 through 10. The disciples and Jesus have been invited back to Bethany by Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus was sick. And upon hearing the news, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm not going back there yet because I love you. Again, that seems paradoxical to them, but it's the truth. They needed to know something and learn something of paramount importance. So he waited to go back. And in the meantime, Lazarus died. Once Lazarus had died, Jesus says, we're going back. Beginning at verse 7 through 10, we find the interaction that Jesus has with his disciples. And we see, for instance, that the disciples are first short-sighted in faith in verses 7 through 10. The disciples reveal their hesitation to go back to Judea, telling Jesus, you want to go back to the very place that you just tried to kill you? And Jesus answers their objection to going by telling them, you need to learn to walk in the light. There's 12 hours in a day, and if you learn to walk in the light, you won't stumble. But if you don't walk in the light, you will stumble. It's like walking in the darkness. He points them, in other words, to the spiritual imperative of walking by faith in truth. Trusting God and walking with Him in faith is compared to walking in the light scripturally and being able to see where you're going. Refusing to walk by faith, but walking by sight, which is fleshly, earthly, carnal, is like walking in the darkness. The spiritual realities at play, you will never see or discern. So Jesus again points his disciples upward, faithward, outward, earthly word. Jesus doesn't fear physical death from the Jews in Judea because he knew his time had not come. He knows the will of the Father and he's walking in it. The disciples are here living by their own wisdom, by their own senses, and they therefore cannot discern why Jesus wants to go back. To Judea. They are also nearsighted in the sense of understanding. In verses 11 through 13 of John chapter 11, while you're reading it and looking at it, I'll sum it for, summarize it for you. Verses 11 through 13, the disciples clearly do not understand what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus tells them very clearly, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him. And the disciples tell him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus was speaking about his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. Once again, we see the earthly mindedness here of the disciples, the nearsightedness, as the scripture calls it. And it leads to their confusion of what Jesus is actually saying. Their mind is still mixed with earthly elements. If he's sleeping, Jesus, he'll wake up. Why do we need to risk death to go wake him up from his nap? But death for those who believe in Jesus is commonly compared to sleep in the scripture because physical death is not permanent. And yet the disciples fail to grasp this spiritual truth being communicated to them by metaphor. So Jesus has to explain it. We also see the nearsightedness of the disciples and the purpose. Verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, so that you may believe. Let us go to Thomas, his fellow disciples, and let us go with him to our own death. He makes this statement, well, if Jesus is going to Judea, then let us go there that we may die. In other words, his mind is made up. Jesus is going to Judea, and he will die there. Revealing again, the disciples are still not on the same plane as Jesus was. But we see the nearsightedness not only in the disciples, we see it in Martha as well. Moving forward in our passage, verses 17 through 27, and then again in verses 38 through 41, we see Martha, one of Jesus' beloved followers, interacting once Jesus sends or shows up to Bethany. She goes out to meet him, and in verse 21, she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. As passionate as and empathetic as we can be to Martha's sadness at the loss of her brother, this statement reveals that Martha, too, was nearsighted. Martha's conception of Jesus and his plan was backwards. 
Her statement in verse 21 reveals her nearsightedness. In other words, she wanted Jesus to come so that her brother Lazarus might be spared physical death. But Jesus, because he loved her in chapter 11, verse 5, waited to come and let him die. Because Martha, Mary, and the disciples need to understand physical death is not the greatest evil that can befall us. We need to break upon the light of a greater truth about the resurrection. It's a common misconception with people that Jesus' main concern is to spare us from physical death. That is not the case. Mary, Martha's sister, had the same exact response as Martha did. In verses 28-32 of John 11, Mary's response to Jesus was, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They grieved over his physical death. Jesus grieved over his physical death because it was sin, the spiritual malady, that took it. But in each of these three cases, the disciples, Martha and Mary, they are followers of Christ and yet they are still clearly earthly minded. They do not yet perceive the spiritual realities of who Check, check. Okay. So they do not perceive the spiritual realities of who Jesus is and what it is he's actually doing. And this is especially true concerning life, death, and the resurrection they knew was to come. They might be alive, but not to its fullness. They might have knowledge, but inaccurately, in other words. Then there's the second group. Those who are spiritually blind. The Pharisees, in other words, represent this group for us. In John chapter 11, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, some of those who witnessed the resurrection went and told the Pharisees. If you look, verse 45 with me in John 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Once again, you see their blindness. Jesus is setting things right side up. They think faith in Jesus is upside down. But what do they plot in verse 39? One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And it says in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Out of jealousy, the Pharisees hated Jesus. He was drawing away the crowds that they once entertained to faith in himself. And it is so almost funny, if not so sad, that in verse 53, they are planning to kill the one who just demonstrated has the power over death. Not only are they trying to kill Jesus, but we're told in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, that they also plotted to kill Lazarus. Now, if you were Lazarus, do you think you'd fear that? If you'd just been raised from the grave? What can man do to me? What blindness the Pharisees demonstrate in trying to put one to death who has power over it. But this is the spiritual reality they are in. What about the dead living? Well, there's one man who illustrates this group for us in our passage, and that is Lazarus. In John 11, after, he interact, after Jesus interacts with both Mary and Martha, they take him to the tomb. And Jesus cries out in verse 44, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth, Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Very simply, Lazarus is the object lesson for all of us. In fact, Jesus prayed in verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. Why did Jesus allow Lazarus to physically die? So that all of us who are witnesses might come to faith in him. In verse 14 of John chapter 11, he said the same thing to his disciples as we read. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there to spare him from that. And why? So that you may believe. In other words, death and preventing physical death is not the most important issue on Jesus' mind. It is faith in him which is most important. So what does all this mean? And on this Resurrection Sunday, what are we to make of the resurrection? Why is it so important? Why is the focus faith? Well, the key to our passage in John chapter 11 is verses 21 through 26 and what Jesus has to say to Martha. If you want to look at that with me, beginning in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That is a fact, but that's where her understanding stopped. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Three parts to what Jesus said I want to focus on for the remainder of our time. First, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, Jesus pushes Martha beyond simply the fact Jesus is not just simply going to preside over the resurrection. He's not simply going to bring about the resurrection, though true. Jesus is pushing her much closer to himself. Martha, I am the resurrection. There is no life and there is no resurrection apart from who I am. It is me that's the resurrection. It is not simply an event. He then says this, secondly, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It seems like a contradiction. But this statement is really the key. Really, it's only one word that is the key. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the English translates it. And this is unfortunate because the English loses the significance of what Jesus is saying. In the Greek, the word in is a preposition, into. Literally what Jesus says is, whoever believes into me will never die. And what it signifies is this, church. It signifies something much more than a mental faith. One can have faith in facts without being into the facts. It points, in other words, to a union that faith creates with the one who believes and the one who is believed. And what Jesus tells Martha, you must believe into me, Martha. The one who is united to Jesus, though he may die physically, yet shall he live. Spiritual resurrection, in other words, precedes physical resurrection. We will die physically. He finishes the statement, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The one who dies and finds life spiritually now in Jesus will never die. And he's not speaking of physical death. 
The resurrection of Jesus, in other words, is first preceded by his own death, a death to which he says all of us must be joined if we wish to understand and obtain to his resurrection. Romans 6, 5, Paul said it this way, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with a resurrection like his. Again in Romans 6, 8, a few verses later, he says, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is exactly what Jesus means to Martha. You must believe into me, Martha. I'm glad you know the fact of the resurrection on the last day, but it is now. You must join in union to me, be conformed to the likeness of my death, so that you may also attain to the likeness of my life. In fact, it was that one truth that was Paul's one ambition. Philippians 3, 10, 11, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That was the Apostle Paul's passion. Those who are nearsighted fail to grasp this truth. They're content in other words, with facts, because facts can settle a troubled conscience while also allowing you to retain your earthly desires. And Jesus says you cannot have both. If you want the resurrection, you must die to the sin that's keeping you dead to me. We are all dead in sins, Paul said as Bo read. And we must come become dead in sin so that we may live to God. If you are here this morning, in other words, and are a Martha or a Mary or one of the disciples who, who have a mixture of faith and facts, but you're nearsighted, you don't understand the spiritual realities, all these earthly troubles and anxieties that surround us cause you fear, then you need to learn from this account. Don't set your eyes on the things of the earth. As Paul said to the Colossian church, Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Walk in the light of God's truth. Die to the flesh. Die to the world. Stop living for it. Set your hope in God. Yes, Lazarus died physically. But by raising him from the dead, Jesus is also elevating our gaze heavenly and spiritually. For those who are spiritually blind, the physical death of Lazarus also makes this beautiful point. Those who would wish to have life, they must first die. They must first die to themselves, to the world. As the scripture says, the world at every turn opposes the Lord. In his last supper with him, as we talked about Thursday on our Facebook live stream, one of the things Jesus told the disciples is, if the world hates you, it hated me first. Become like your master. But not only does the world hate the Lord, your own flesh hates the Lord. Paul said in Galatians 5, the flesh is at war with the spirit. It is carnal. It is an enemy of God. And the only thing that it's good for is to die. He didn't come to redeem your flesh. He came to put it to death. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live became Paul's motto, and it must become every person's motto who wishes to share in the resurrection of Jesus. So what's our application this morning? Perhaps all of this is a bit puzzling to you. Perhaps you've been content for a long time about knowing the resurrection as a fact. Perhaps this makes you a little uncomfortable teaching the resurrection on such a personal level a union with the Lord. Because after all, as we talk about resurrection, the resurrection implies resurrected from something. We must die. We must share in His death if we want to enjoy the resurrection. Unbelief, which is failing to be united with Jesus, into Jesus, as He said to Martha, in His death and resurrection, is by far a greater evil than the physical death we might face. 
failing to be united with Jesus in his death and resurrection causes us to remain in our sins, keeping us dead to God and without hope in this world. For those who die to themselves now, who are willing to take up their cross and follow him, deny themselves, they will find spiritual life now. In other words, as Braden and Jenny sang that song, that Jesus is resurrecting me now, is true. The resurrection is now, not a future event only. You can have spiritual life now. For those who refuse to unite themselves with Jesus' cross now, they will know both physical death as well as spiritual death. For those who die to themselves now, the only death they'll ever die is physically. And even that will one day be overcome. But Jesus, in his conversation with Martha, after explaining all of this clearly, he put the ball in her court. He asked her very simply, do you believe this? It is the most important question any person can answer. If you fail to believe what Jesus says here, you are literally without life and without hope. Jesus is the only one who's ever paid the penalty for my sin. And he's the only one who overcame the grave for me. If I fail to attain to that unity, I fail at everything. But it is by faith that I join in that union with Christ. It's not works, it's not righteousness, it's not my effort, it's not a feeling, it's not magic. I believe it. And I believe into those truths. Many outwardly have a name that they are alive, but they are dead. Maybe you have a type of faith in the Lord, but your faith is never taking you any farther than your religious observances or the acquiring of true facts about Jesus. Martha knew facts. She had yet to know Jesus as the resurrection and the life. She had not yet come into union with him. Maybe these truths of the dead living and the living dead are a mystery. It doesn't have to be. And what I want to do now this morning is if you find yourself with a bunch of facts but without conformity to Christ's death, the question is for you, do you truly believe into Him yet? Have you truly believed into union with Jesus? It's an open invitation scripturally. For God so loved the world, as Bo preached two weeks ago, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's an open invitation for all of us. That's what the resurrection is. It's happening now, and it begins with a union with the Lord's death, and then His resurrection. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. The debt has been canceled for all who trust in Him. He's overcome the grave so that, yes, we will all die physically, but that is not the greatest evil. The greatest evil, spiritual separation from God, has been dealt with for the believer. We are united with Him. As Paul goes on to say in Galatians 2, or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. So the invitation this morning, church, if you're listening and you find yourself like a Martha, knowing facts but without a union, I want you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He invites every one of us into that relationship. He calls you first to follow Him to the cross. To those would-be followers in the very next chapter of our Gospel, John, who wanted to see Jesus, this is what he told them. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And what he's telling them is this, you cannot see me unless you die first. And then Jesus from that point begins to speak about the cross. You must follow me where I'm going. And he was first going to the cross. For those of you listening, if you're still living in your sin and yet have a bunch of facts about Jesus, you need union with him in his death. Invite him now to give you grace that you may come out of your sin.
and come to Him, that you may share in His resurrection as well. For the believers here who have joined themselves in union with Christ through faith, set your eyes and your mind on things above, not on the earth. Don't become nearsighted in what's happening in the world right now. This is not our hope. The resurrection of Jesus has already dealt with the most important realities and truths that face us. And it is not earthly. They are spiritual. We have hope beyond this earth. I want to close in prayer as I invite Jenny and Braden back up to take us out in song. Thank you guys for being here. I look forward to seeing you next week, and I look forward to one day, hopefully very soon, getting to hug you and shake your hands. God bless. Let me pray. Father God, as we celebrate the resurrection, we don't celebrate it only as a fact of history, though it is, and it is the most important fact of history. Father, we celebrate what the resurrection accomplished for us and that now we can have a personal union with Jesus. We're conforming to his death. We will also conform to his life. If we die with him, we will also live with him. This is what Jesus is telling Martha, Mary, and his disciples. Don't set your eyes on the physical grave. There's a greater problem that I'm about to deal with. Father, I pray for those who know facts but know, have no union with you. Father, show them that and draw them into that relationship you call us all to. Whoever would receive him, John chapter 1 says, you give the right to become children of God. I pray that even in the, the seat that they're sitting in in the vehicle right now, that they would receive you. That they'd be willing to take up a cross, die to themselves, repent of their sin and trust in you. Pray this in Jesus' name.
I hope you guys have a blessed week. Happy Easter.